Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me here on the Recovery Executive Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Jaworski, owner of Circle Social Inc. Today, we have a very exciting guest. We have Denny Carries. She is the Chief Scientific Officer of Recovery Centers of America. A lot of people know her. Um, she has 30 years of expertise in this field. But before we get started uh, with what's going on, what topics we're covering, just a really quick word from our sponsor here. When seconds can make the difference between admitting a qualified client or losing them to a change of heart, a competitor, or worse, Verify TX gives your team the tools they need to help save a life. Available 24-7 from your smartphone, the web, and now Salesforce. Start by seeing the 15-minute demo today at VerifyTX.com and be sure to mention the Recovery Executive Podcast for a special offer. So I want to thank Verify TX for sponsoring this episode of the Recovery Executive Podcast. Uh, Verify TX is a program that we recommend to a lot of our client centers because it is a fantastic way just to very quickly get some basic information on your VOBs. So Denny is on the show today and she is talking about a wide variety of things. You know, she's got, like I said, 30 years of experience in the field and she has just a fantastic amount of knowledge on what works and what doesn't in treatment. So we'll be talking a lot about what evidence-based treatment looks like and how that can be effective, not just from a clinical perspective, but also how you can use it in your business development and marketing efforts. And she, she has a very large role in community outreach for RCA. Um, she does a lot of legislative work. She does a lot of radios and podcasts and TV shows and things like that. So how does that translate for them? What does it mean? Then we also start talking about trends in the field. You know, So what's happening in terms of drug use? Are, are drugs of use changing? And what does that mean for us, both clinically and possibly from a marketing perspective, um, as well as localization is a huge trend that's happening right now and it's affecting the field in a lot of ways and rca has capitalized that on that and been quite successful because of it but we'll get a little bit deeper into what that means for your particular center so with that let's listen to what she has to say hey danny really excited to have you on the show today how's it going it's going well thanks so much glad to be here yeah great well can you tell us a bit about yourself i mean i know everyone knows you already but for those who don't well, I don't think everybody knows me, but um, Nick, I've been in the field for more than 30 years, and that's probably what happens when you kind of work like a dog for 30 years in one area. Um, I always joke that it's one of the great things about getting older is that you know a whole field if you've been in it a long time. So um, I started with doing clinical work during my years in school for about seven years, and then I had 16 years as a federally funded um, health services researcher. I was funded mostly by the National Institutes of Health, but CSAT and ONDCP also. Um, health services research is where your grants and studies are focused on real-world treatment programs and, and developing things that are immediately useful to the field. And in the past nine years, I've worked in developing and clinically running large-scale treatment system, 100 uh, programs for a couple of different places, and now RCA. So um, I'm really dedicated to serving the field and the communities that are so hard hit by drug and alcohol problems. And I'm in long-term recovery myself. That's how I started back in school. And just very important to me that the world knows that treatment works, recovery is possible, and, and to never give up. Excellent. And then RCA is Recovery Centers of America. Is that correct? Yes. Thank you. No problem. Um, and then so you were very 
into the research end of things, which I love, and that's one of the reasons I reached out to you to be on the show originally. Your title is actually Chief Scientific Officer, which is pretty unique in the field. You know, can you tell us a little bit specifically about that role? I can, and actually one of my trainers informed me that the only other person she knew with that title was actually Spock on Star Trek. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I feel awesome. like I'm in good company, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so what I do is I bring the science to bear on everything we do. So Recovery Centers of America is a de novo. We develop treatment programs from the ground up. We don't um, roll them up into our our company we roll out, right? So as because of that, everything starts really with um, zoning meetings to try and get a site approved. And so I represent the science um, in all of the zoning meetings. I address the typical NIMBY concerns and the profound stigma that comes up there. And, um, you know, the two of the top five questions I always get are, what do you do if someone escapes? And uh, will you put a fence around the program, which really shows you the level of stigma. So I kind of bring the science to bear on that. And then secondly, in developing and architecting our treatment programs based on the science, requiring things like psychiatry and family therapy, even when states don't require it, because the science shows that that's hugely important in helping people um, stay in treatment and be successful after treatment. And then finally, the stuff that you probably see the most is representing the company and the science in everything we do from industry conferences to radio and TV shows, articles, being on boards, testifying in Congress, pitching new legislation. Um, most of these things, importantly to me, are things that the whole community can access, the, the, the recovery community, the treatment community, can, that, and the families and, and people struggling. So. That includes providers, individuals, families can all access many of these things, which is, is really important to me that I'm of service to the greater field. That's what I love. I really love what you do with your work where you are helping across the board and RCA seems to be doing that too, where there's a focus on the legislation, there's a focus on supporting other centers. I love the focus on evidence-based care. Um, and as you're mentioning, you do, you know, it's kind of like a lot of PR in your role, right? You know, from the NIMBY to the legislation to the radio shows, you know, what value have you seen come out of that role? Yeah. So, Nick, I actually I feel really lucky to be able to have that role, to be able to have it from a per perspective of somebody who's um, started treatment in 20 countries and done, you know, national research with 300 sites in my research to having done clinical, um, but to be able to now be at RCA and, and have this role where I can try and be of value um, to the field. So in, in 2018, for example, I did 57 interviews that went to print, radio, or TV. And, you know, 35 of them went to print in different newspapers, trade publications, um, you know, about 13 TV, opioid specials, health watch segments, Al Jazeera, and a bunch of, of radio shows, which all somehow tend to air Sunday mornings at 6 a.m. So I think I'm like the queen <laughs> of 6 a.m. Sunday. But look, RCA's mission is to get a million people into meaningful recovery, but they don't look for value in terms of admissions for what I do. They, they really look for value to the field um, as well or more than the company, the you know, value of the company. They look for my work to educate families and individuals just struggling with the disease to educate other providers who may not have somebody who works to know all of the trends. I spend a lot of my time tracking the trends of what's going on federally, 
out in the field in terms of treatment, in terms of the problems coming in, and trying to be, you know, a voice for that. So, um, you know, what I see come out of that is is a lot of different educational opportunities, a lot of different uh, ways to get the message across, and that's important to me. For sure. I have a lot of respect for that. You know, I was just talking on LinkedIn this morning that for me, and I think for a lot of people in this field, the purpose of business is to provide value to the world, right? It's not to make a profit. The profit is a result of providing value in the world. Absolutely. realize that you end up being successful. And I know, you know, you were saying that January was one of your best months so far, right? Um, In terms of RCA. So I think that is evident there, you know, that what you guys are doing is working. Yeah, yeah, I like that. So, um, so you talked a little bit about the legislative work as well, which is tied to all this other, um, all these other efforts that you have in the community. From a business standpoint, you know, do you see value? Do you track any of those numbers? I, I know that you said that RCA doesn't necessarily ask you to do that, but do you have any hard data around what you're doing and what that goal is? Uh, for me, for me personally, in my work, no. I mean, we literally—that's not the the purpose of having me on board. The purpose of having me on board is to have somebody with a background I have that can push um, the federal legislative work that we're doing. That can push, you know, information out to, to folks. I mean, it's incredibly important that um, addiction treatment and recovery are all accurately portrayed at, at, in, in film and, and TV and whatnot. So of everything I've done, I mean, I've got a couple hundred publications and all this other 20 countries I've worked in, all this jazz. The thing people love the most about my resume is that I, I actually um, taught the actors how to act under the influence of quaaludes and cocaine for Martin Scorsese for The Wolf oh, of Wall right. Street. That's the thing people think is like the most fun <laughs> that I've done. And it was kind of fun, but... You know, to be able to have an impact at all these different levels of how people see addiction and treatment and recovery um, is incredibly important. And, and there really is not. I, I guess I'm extremely lucky. You know, nobody's looking to see, you know, did I do a talk and did somebody come into treatment? It's a much broader, um, you know, goal. Hmm. That's excellent. Um, on the legislative end of things, can you tell us a little bit about what you, what bills you're supporting or what, what you're doing in that area? I can. So we developed, we had a lot of input, um, but we hired a, a team of lawyers to write um, a number. It's actually one bill called Plan A, but it's really 22 separate acts. And Patrick Kennedy was involved in it as well. As a matter of fact, I think he called it Plan A because there was no Plan B at the time. But uh you know, the the um, Plan A has about 22 separate acts. There's seven of them focused on treatment standards, licensing, particularly for sober living, for medication-assisted, um, you know, for getting people from the emergency department into treatment. There's another four of them are on expanding capacity, and these have to do with tapping the federal government for investment or tax credits so that we can get more treatments out there. There are three different acts encouraging um, national standards for coverage, including heavy um, push for parity to have teeth. And then about eight uh, pieces of it are about um, increasing treatment coverage in, from Medicare to Medicaid to the VA for federal employees who don't have the coverage we might think they do. And it, again, it's so important to me. There's not one thing in these 22 acts that benefit RCA Recovery Centers of America alone. They all benefit most treatment providers, and there's a good half of them that won't benefit Recovery Centers of America right now because 
um, our residential programs don't take um, Medicaid. Um, we have some outpatient programs that do, but there's, you know, about half of them really don't benefit us. They just are the right thing for the field. That's awesome. I think this is something that would probably interest a lot of listeners, you know, but if they wanted to get involved in supporting that kind of work, whether it's supporting the legislative work you guys are already doing or maybe um, doing something else on their own, you know, do you have tips or suggestions for that? Um, actually, that's a great question. I should develop that. So, and, and this is, by the way, this is how I, I fill my agenda with what to do. I, I, there's a need in the field, and let's do it, you know. Um, you know, so I, I don't have a lot other than call your local congressman, um, keep, keep on tap of what's happening, because our voices really do matter. But you know what? I might make a, how, you know, a how-to book on um, getting involved with this kind of thing. Yeah, it might be a good idea. You know, I, I do a little bit of legislative work when I'm in D.C. or here, like I have a meeting with one of our state senators um, next week, Monday, on this issue. But it's it's different, right? It's not something that people are used to. It takes a lot of work to get into, um, and it's a lot harder to track results because <laughs> you're never quite sure where things are going. <laughs> well, it takes a long time. I mean, Perry right. was, I think, 12 years in the making, and uh, Carol right. McDade, I think, really was the the brains, you know, and then the the leg power, the manpower behind that. Yeah, but, you know, you mentioned a name there, and I don't know her per se, but what I found is that it's often a very small number of people that affect the change. Um, so one in, you know, person or a couple people can really have a huge impact if they put their minds to it. Yeah, and there's different things. See, I tend to get, in the past, I've gotten involved in legislation for several reasons. One, my work's kind of nationally known. Um, and, and so people know who I am, you know, and so, for example, I got invited to testify at Chris Christie's committee, um, in Washington last year, um, more because of kind of who I am and whatnot. And then there's other things. So, so I don't really know, for example, like if I wanted to impact my local congressman on something, how would I know what they're doing and what to do about it? But I should. And so I'm going to make a how-to book on that. Oh, that'd be great. Well, we'll look forward to it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, so going back to the community outreach piece, you know, you're obviously leading with value. And this is something we talk a lot about on the show here is leading with value, show up as an expert. Um, and again, I know you're not tracking that directly, but maybe indirectly or anecdotally, what have you seen in terms of building trust in community and referral partners? Well, um, I mean, I think that, like, again, I'm really lucky to be able to spend my time doing this. I did 32 presentations last year, um, mostly industry conferences, but also community groups, large parent groups, federal and local legislation, police groups, um, academic, I, uh, and insurance companies have had me present. Um, a lot of what I present is what's best practices, what's evidence-based treatment, how would you, um, you know, build this this capability. I'm also on a few advisory boards for Dartmouth and SAMHSA. And, and the, the reason for all of this is that we want communities, the families, the industry, our competitors, the press to understand addiction, treatment, and recovery again. So it's really a result of a desire to help the field at all. And then my background of, I've, you know, I've had 300 programs in uh, the DEN study, which was a NIDA-funded study, and another 100 in at Phoenix House and 100 CRC. So I think people have come to know me and that I put the patient's best interest and what we know from science first. So I put, you know, how can we better help the patients 
and and what do we know from the science to lead that above any kind of a personal opinion I may have or above any expectation people may have that I would just be kind of a walking commercial for, for RCA. The field knows that that's not who I am, you know, and RCA is a great system. I think it's the best, but I want everybody to, to really thrive and survive. The country needs that. For sure. You said I think you have a meeting with Nora Volko coming up in a couple of weeks. Was that right? I do. I do. She's. I'm very excited. So I'm going to talk to her a little bit about the study that she's doing as well as um, talk to her about being more involved in the clinical trials network and, and how I can help with that. Interesting. So you mentioned that you don't want to be seen as a walking build for billboard for RCA, which is what honestly I think a lot of um, business development reps are seen as, and they've been growing. Um, so you have BD reps everywhere all the time now, and they're competing with each other. Do you have any stories just from your end of um, you know people that you've contacted with in that context and how they've reacted to you or anything they said to you? Um, based on the way that you approach them versus, you know, probably these other 15 people trying to get in their door every day? Well, I think um, one of the great things, again, um, about getting older in the same field over a long time is that you get to get to know everybody. So when we first um, opened RCA, I had a scientific advisory board that I put together. And it was, and it, and from all my research where everybody reviews each other's grants, it's like anything else. When you're, you're in a field at a certain level, everybody knows everybody. As a result, I was able to get together these like 15, 18 of the top people in the field in all different areas. And I, I don't think they would have come in a heartbeat for another treatment program if they hadn't known that it was me and that my goal in that meeting, I mean, we had two former drug czars, a former debt director at NIDA. We had, we had all the top folks in the field. I was really, um, I was really so happy at the response I had, but they know that I'm not bringing them in there to, to, you know, teach them about every nuance of what RCA is doing. I'm bringing them in there to say, this is what I think the science says is best practice. And the other, another big goal of that meeting was that I wanted to see what is the field doing, what's the field doing, and how can we um, increase what the field's doing in terms of, of getting best practices out there and in terms of outcome studies. I love that. I love that. I mean, I think that's the direction that every treatment center needs to go, needs to be focused on providing the value, providing the evidence, you know, and then you can mention why your program aligns with that there. You know, even here in Indiana, I'll sit through some local treatment center presentations from time to time. I just go for the free lunches, right? Because all it is is a, a sales pitch. <laughs> you know, it's just like, well, great, you guys are doing treatment. I, I knew that before I came in, right? Um, so what makes you different? How is it evidence-based? And a lot of times they don't go into that, you know? So from my perspective, you know, as an expert or at least well-versed in the field, you know, I already know what a good treatment program looks like. I want to know if you can prove that to me and not that you have, you know, nice accommodations with private right, bedrooms right, or whatever. Right, right, a great, uh, you know? wonderful bed. You know, and I yeah, think people right. deserve to be comfortable at that time in their life when they're getting well. I mean, I think it's great to have a place where people feel respected and they're comfortable, but that's not what, that's not the, what gets them well. It may actually keep them there a little bit sometimes when they might want to leave. You know, it's easier to leave a place where there's, you know, bunk beds and all that jazz. Um, but that's not, you know, the, the big part of what gets them well. And I've actually had a, um, a policy uh, that, that I've pretty much held to, which is that 
Actually, RCA never pays anybody for me to present. This whole pay-to-play that the field's gotten into is really um, – I have trouble with that, probably because I'm from the science side where you can't pay to play for anything anywhere ever. You know, it, you know, it's it's all about the science and blind reviews of what you might want to present, you know. So this idea that you could pay whatever $1,000 to sponsor a lunch and be the keynote speaker – that's actually difficult for me. I've had other people sponsor me, um, and I've also I'm kind of proud that I've been tagged, and I've done a number of those lunches you're talking about without my company sponsoring for, for me to be there. And it's because people know that I'm going to come in. I'm probably going to relate it to what we do because if I wasn't leading Recovery Centers of America the way I think is right based on the science, it wouldn't make sense. But I'm really going to talk more about the science and the best thing for the field. And yeah, I think people know that. I would say they do, right? I mean, reputation's everything at the end of the day. You know, um, it's, it's much more important than I think a lot of people realize. So, talking about evidence-based treatment, you know, I'm a huge advocate of evidence-based treatment. It's, it's one of the things I talk about a lot. Um, you and I were talking the other day about localizing treatment, and I've been talking a lot about how the field is moving towards a localized model regardless due to Google algorithms and the way AdWords works now and just the interest in the marketplace and things like that. Um, but you've also mentioned that you think from a data perspective and an evidence-based perspective that's much more effective. So can you talk a little bit about the value of localizing your treatment center? Oh, I absolutely can. Um, the flyaway model where people fly away to Florida or California, do their residential care, then come home with none of those supports, none of those connections and whatnot, and have to show up again at a new outpatient center and tell their story and bear their soul to another group to start. So 50% of people don't show up for the first outpatient visit, and another 50% don't come a second time. So... Um, I would say 95% of the time, it is much better for you to get treatment around where you live. And the reasons for that are so that you start developing those relationships, both with professional providers, who, by the way, when you're done outpatient shouldn't, or done inpatient, shouldn't say, okay, great, good luck to you. They should say, okay, we're going to continue you in outpatient. We're going to put you, you know, here's our outpatient site. Um, you know, is this a convenience? Here's a doctor that's prescribing your Suboxone. They can continue to see you. We owe it to our patients to see them across the continuum of care. And when you fly away, that can't be done. The other piece of it is that, um, you know, again, you, you fly away, all the relationships you started end when you come back, and then you have to create new ones, and it's just much easier for the person to, to pick up and to use. They don't even have the people, not just the professionals, but the, the, the patients. A lot of our patients go to, go to meetings together after they get out, and it's funny for me because I still go to meetings occasionally to see a bunch of our alumni, you know, out at meetings. We also have a very robust alumni program, but anywhere, depending on our site, anywhere from like six to 85% of our patients come from within a 50-mile radius, and they are designed that way. Um, so, again, there's really just very few people for whom moving away work. One of those groups of people are folks who are in a very typically impoverished but more so dysfunctional kind of family situation. Their dad's in jail. Their mom is prostituting for drugs. Their brother's dealing drugs. If you can get them away from that and keep them away, then you're doing well. You know, and the other group of people that, again, very small minority, are folks who are, are truly very famous where you want the entire treatment program to know how to deal with that. You don't, and it takes a lot of training for the entire program to know 
that when, you know, the movie star comes or whatnot, you know, the kitchen staff don't point at them or nobody, you know, asks them for an autograph or something like that. So that's that's another group. I would say 95 percent of people do better if they start in their neighborhood. They get connected to the people, to the recovery groups and to the professionals that they need to. We even designed our outpatient programs. We have outpatient at all but one of our residential sites. Um, and the, we have a number of satellite outpatients also, and we designed all of them to look a lot like and be decorated like our residential sites so that you go in, you see the same kind of uh, the steps are on the wall in the same kind of frame art, and you see the same, you know, chairs and whatnot. So you feel like you're coming home, you know? That's, that's what gets people to keep coming back. For sure, for sure. I mean, I think there's so much value to localizing treatment. Um, and I guess what I would add to that, you know, for those that are maybe skeptical about it from the business standpoint, it's incredibly effective, you know, so when I look at our clients and the ones that have local strategies running, we get much cheaper costs for admits, you know, we've even had clients that we've moved them because I keep telling them we have to localize, we have to localize. And when we moved away from what I call chasing the policies, where, you know, even if you're in Florida, you're trying to find policies in the Northeast or whatever, and we've moved the marketing just to a local or a statewide region, cost per admit has dropped from like $4,000 for a multimedia lead to 700, you know? So the cost savings are huge because they're local. You don't have to worry about flights. You know, the only challenge from the business end is being in network, right? So if you weren't in network, it's gonna be a heck of a lot harder to run a, a localized marketing operation program. But like RCA, I think you guys are in network with like everyone, right? 98% of our patients utilize in-network benefits. And by the way, that is by design. Um, frankly, I think that is the right thing for the patients. I keep wishing I could give you a marketing reason for some things, but the reality is it's all based on, frankly, what's right by the patients. So um, even though I, as, as the kind of scientific director, uh, require psychiatry, which is very expensive, frankly, and, and a good ratio of family therapists who are not required because that's what the science says helps. We're all in network and we don't have a revenue line item for urine drug screens. I, I, you know, I wouldn't have taken the job. That was one of my, I had a half a dozen like this, 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 and that, or, I'm, or don't even talk to me, you know, and one of them was that urine drug screens were not going to be, you know, a revenue line item and, and make up for 25% of our income. I thought that was, <laughs> I still do think that's egregious and inappropriate. Um, in network, I mean, again, our goal is to help get a million people into really meaningful recovery. And you do that by keeping the cost low, by being in network, by not bilking for urine drug screens, by having um, free space for family groups and recovery groups to meet in your sites, and by connecting people right from residential to outpatient. Excellent. So let's talk about that family piece, because that's a big evidence-based piece as well. And a lot of programs will have like a family weekend or, or you know, some kind of fairly unstructured family program. You know, what does your program look like? Yeah, um, we have an incredible leader for our family programs overall. And then at the sites, we have uh, family therapists. So the family programs, um, they, they include everything from groups just for the family, like support groups for the family, to family therapy, one-to-one -one family therapy, to larger education groups and multiple family therapy groups. So it's really kind of a mix. Initially, when we came in, I had done some work with Betty Ford's family groups and um, Karen's and whatnot, and I kind of wanted this week-long family group. But we, again, we're local, we're in network, but we have folks that cannot afford to take 
you know, five, six days off, no matter how terrible this disease is. And we wanted to make it work for the people that came to us. So we have all of these different kind of pieces running, but we have... We also have um, kind of a mandatory, you call and talk to the family within the first 72 hours. You get the family involved right away. And we have procedures where the family can be involved even if there's a terrible rift between the patient and the family. We have um, free groups for the family, free education where they can kind of start their own recovery even if everybody um, says, we're not gonna meet together, which we, we generally turn that around. But if, it's, if it really is tough in the beginning, we have things the family can and should do um, even without putting the family and the patient together right away. So we've talked about localizing treatment We've talked about the family involvement, both really important evidence-based pieces. What are some other evidence-based pieces that you guys incorporate that you maybe don't see as common in the field or as common as we'd like them to be? Yeah, um, some of the other things, you know, honestly, the there are a number of evidence-based practices, of course, right? There's a number of psychosocial evidence-based practices and there's a number of medication. Um, evidence-based practices. So what we want to do is we want to be able to offer anything that's been shown to have an evidence base. We don't want to rule anything out uh, because oh, we don't we don't want medication or we're theoretically but we don't have any of that going on. So one of the things we do is um, we try and have those evidence-based specific curriculums and practices like we have an evidence-based relapse prevention um, program that we do. And, and when I say it's evidence-based, I, I literally mean there's studies on this program that have shown that people who get this do better than people who get treatment as usual. You know, you got to keep in mind I'm a scientist and I, I'm literal when I say that they're evidence-based. So um, a couple others, and a lot of them are very free. In fact, I made about 35 toolkits of evidence-based practices at my last two uh, places that I worked. And many of them are virtually free. The um, Texas Christian University put out a bunch of evidence-based cognitive behavioral practices that are all um, in what we call the public domain. So there's ones on getting ready to leave treatment. There's ones on building your treatment plans. There's um, there's a couple that we do. We do a curriculum called Unlock Your Thinking, which addresses cognitive distortions. Um, so there's, there's a number of very specific things we do, groups we do. But the other overarching part is um, get them into treatment when they're ready. You, you know, they talk about you have an hour, you know, from when somebody has a, a physical trauma. We got like a minute when somebody's ready to go to treatment. We do admissions 24-7, and that was a really big shift for people in the field. And I would say most of our admissions are between 6 p.m. and 2 a.m., but we do them 24 hours a day whenever the person comes in. They got an appointment for 4 p.m., they come in at 2 a.m., we're ready. You know, so that is a, a very big deal, and I love that we do that. Um, we have the full continuum of care. The longer you stay in treatment, all the science shows, the longer you stay in treatment, the better likelihood of success. So I'm up for anything, even some non-evidence-based groups or activities where people stay in treatment because they love it, um, because length of time in treatment is, is really the biggest thing. Um, again, psychiatric uh, care, family care, those were all things that uh, were part of my kind of non-negotiables. So those are the evidence-based things we do. Excellent. And then can you make a comment, just because this is a personal pet peeve of mine um, with some programs I see, is they do 
what I call lectures or educational lectures, right? So rather than doing like CBT or DBT work um, and helping people kind of revamp cognitive skills or, you know, get rid of the distortions, it's just like them sitting in a classroom and listening to a lecture. Um, I don't know if you could make a comment on, on that. I can, actually. I mean, there's so many good curricula out there um, to deliver. And like I said, the, the Texas Christian University developed one that's evidence-based that is on addressing cognitive distortions. The other one we do from them is getting motivated to change. It's addressing um, increasing people's motivation to change. So, you know, there's no need to – you can't just gin up something, and it's kind of based on MI – and so everybody says they do MI. That's kind of one of my pet peeves. The place will say, we do DBT, we do MI. And I asked somebody, you know, I said, do we really do, do you really do MI? And they said, well, yeah, I mean, everybody motivates people to stay, stay in treatment and to get well. <laughs> and it, it's like so outside the scope of what MI really is, you know. Right. So if you're going to do it and you're going to say you do it, do it right. It's not that tough. In fact, it's, I think it's easier than having everybody do their own thing you know and, and all the years I've been in the field I'm still going to maintain this you don't know what somebody does when they close that door unless you sit in on it once in a while oh yeah unless the supervisor kind of you know sits in on there once in a while and watches and and says yes this is going right this is not so supervision is another uh, big thing that we really emphasize here that I think the field really needs to emphasize yeah, it's hugely important. You know, I think it was um, with Dr. Kathleen Carroll. Do you know her over at Yale by chance? Oh, I know, I know her well, and uh, she did a great thing where she was—it's um, the cognitive behavioral comments, right? And and we do this right. in research. It might sound odd to people, but she—you know—the sessions at the patient's agreement were were um, audio taped, and then she sent the audio tapes to be coded. Um, for the types of statements the the therapist made. Now the therapists were trained in these cognitive statements and cognitive dissonance and and what state and this and that and you know they tried to code the comments the therapist made and they had to make another category. I mean some were like support of this or you know addressing that. Or they had to make another category called chatting. <laughs> Because so <laughs> yep, much of it exactly. was chat, you know. I right. mean, you go in and, and maybe it's a new patient. They're wearing, an, you know, for, in my perspective, an eagle shirt. And you say, oh, I was so sad about the game, you know, blah, blah, blah. You know, and, and you develop a teeny bit of connection. But if you do that for half of a therapy session, you're not doing a therapy session. Kathy Carroll had it right. You're chatting. <laughs> yep, exactly. Yeah, I, I love her work. You know, it's really shocking a little yeah. bit, right? Oh, she's great. But I think one of the things I wanted to comment on there is that you have to get people involved. You know, so when you're speaking of MI, for example, like a lot of treatment programs will say, yeah, we do MI and then, but they have to do it our way. Well, that's not really MI, <laughs> you know, um, but you've got to get people involved. You know, I always equate whether it's marketing or recovery or whatever to like a gym, right? I can't go to a gym and just sit there and have my trainer talk to me, right? That's not going to help me get my weight loss goals or get my fitness goals. Recovery is the exact same thing. I can't go into a classroom and listen to you and come out the other side sober or in recovery. <laughs> it doesn't work that right, way. Right, right. You've got to get people involved. And, and you're talking about something that is incredibly um, needed by all humans, recovery or not. I mean, people all seek connectedness. Yes. And in the therapeutic relationship, that's called therapeutic alliance. And one of the things Kathy Carroll showed was that you develop therapeutic alliance to the extent that you listen to what they say and address their specific concerns. A lot of research kind of sounds like a no-brainer, but you'd be amazed how much of it doesn't happen. 
Yes, right. It's really interesting, right? And one of the most interesting pieces to research I was saying is one of the, the strongest predictors of effectiveness of a particular um, modality wasn't actually the modality itself, but the empathy and the relationship and the rapport between the therapist and the person in treatment. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. One of the biggest studies ever undertaken was funded by the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism, um, NIAAA, and it was called Project Match, and it was enormous. And it had sites all over the country, and it was it was groups of people that were specifically trained for the study. So it was not in what we would call real-world treatment centers, like my research is. It was in, like at University of Pennsylvania, you can go and sign up, and if you're willing to be in a study, you can get your treatment for free. So it was in those kind of centers. And the reason that's important is because all the therapists were trained for the study. They, we didn't have any kind of like other pressing, you know, uh, issues of, you know, uh, you know, it was very clear cut. And they were trained in either a type of motivational interviewing called motivational enhancement. They were trained in 12-step facilitation. That's where that comes from. And cognitive behavioral. And all three of those were 12-week IOP sessions that, um, and the goal of the study, which was millions of dollars, was to see which one's better or which one's better for which population. And I love when research gives you this, but at the end, what it showed was that, you know, age didn't matter, which one of those three you got didn't matter, uh, gender didn't matter, race didn't matter, drug of choice didn't matter, almost nothing mattered. They all did okay and they all did equally okay. And when they dug more to just look at other variables, what they found was there's only one thing that really predicted anything. And it didn't matter which type of those three therapies they were doing. It was the therapist. The <laughs> therapist was the only active ingredient that predicted how many people got well or not. It, 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 there's no, you know, going against the science, right? <laughs> yep. Yeah. So interesting. Well, something I, I also want to bring up that you can comment on there was you mentioned 12-step um, facilitation therapy, you know, and so sometimes people have used Project Match as a way to say, well, 12-step is super effective, um, which we don't need to get into, but 12-step facilitation is different. It's a structured program with a clinician. It's not the same as some of the, what I'd call less structured 12-step that you'll find in some programs. I don't know if you want to comment on that at all. Well, and this is this will be the only time I'm telling you I'm going to comment based on a personal opinion because there's not a science around that. So, so the scientific side is you're absolutely right. That was 12-step facilitation. And the reason was because they needed to be able to manualize it and they needed to be able to randomly assign people. And you can't randomly assign people to 12-step meetings, know what they're getting, and make sure they go, right? Um, so they did 12-step facilitation, and, and that held up, as, and they tried to model it as close as possible on 12-step meetings, and that held up as much as anything. That said, you know, kind of anecdotally, I've never seen anything help people maintain their recovery after treatment like 12-step meetings. I've never seen people grow, feel connected, and be committed to recovery like the folks I see in the, um, in, that are very active, not just attending, but active. Um, in 12-step meetings. I think, you know, everything, there's nothing that works for everybody, but that has helped so many people. Um, and I, I think it's just a, a huge, uh, obviously free um, support group <laughs> that has helped many people stay sober. Absolutely. Um, all right. So we've covered a lot of ground there. One other thing that you've been talking a lot about, especially on LinkedIn and other places, is current drug trends, um, especially the move away from opioids into cocaine and things like that. So do you want to make any comments on how do you think that might affect where the field is going in the next couple of years? 
Yeah, I mean, there, there's two things that um, that really affect, I think, what the field should do. And I'll, I'll start with the opioids. So they're not really going away, but the synthetic opioids, fentanyl, carfentanyl, and their analogs, they are game changers, and they are not going away. So we may get prescriptions of opioids down. We may get heroin a little bit less, but fentanyl and carfentanyl are not going away. And there's four or five things, I think, that, that treatment programs need to do. So they, they really need to adjust their services to keep people in treatment during this incredibly detox, incredibly difficult detox um, from these drugs that are so strong. Th- this may mean using methadone as opposed to Librium or even Suboxone because these are drugs that really have a longer half-life and stay attached to the receptors in a very strong way. Um, I think programs should include every possible evidence-based practice in their services. This means all medications, not just, oh, okay, we accept Vivitrol, that's okay, or, or Vivitrol and Suboxone, but also, you know, get an, a, a, a license to be able to detox people or get them started on methadone if that's the way it should go. Um, treatment programs need to partner with local physicians who can provide ongoing Suboxone, Vivitrol, and MAT programs for methadone. Um, I think we need to work more with opioid overdoses in the emergency departments to get folks into treatment just post-overdose. And keep in mind that harm reduction helps all of us. People's emotional opinion about what harm reduction is or isn't, does or doesn't do, doesn't count when we're trying to save lives, you know? So that's my thing about what treatment programs should do for the opioids. The next thing I think people really need to uh, look at is that amphetamine and uh, amphetamines and cocaine, they are right down the, the road, and they're going to make a big comeback. So 97% of all drugs seized at our borders are cocaine and amphetamine. 97% of everything seized at the border is cocaine and amphetamine, and, and predominantly 83% cocaine. Um, this seems kind of counterintuitive, but the problem with that is that at a time when everyone seems to be pushing for medication-assisted therapies and sometimes for medication alone, I believe we're on the cusp of an epidemic that really will dwarf the opioid epidemic that many experts say will be bigger than the opioid epidemic, and it is a problem for which there is no medication. So I think the field needs to get ready to treat these problems. I think when they see funding, lobbying, um, and other efforts uh, that are focused on MAT to the exclusion of therapy, because frankly, the states, the states are being pushed by the feds, the insurance companies are being pushed to treat more people, treat more people, treat more people, and it's really starting a kind of MAT alone kind of mindset right on the cusp of a problem coming that has no medication. So I think people need to get involved when they see that kind of of thing happening. And then to learn about the specific needs of cocaine and amphetamine users and why they use these and address those issues. Excellent comments. I really appreciate that. You know, and then for listeners, even on the marketing end, we've been seeing a lot of um, content that we're putting out there around meth and cocaine drive a lot more inquiries than it used to. So it's happening on the user end as well, where we're seeing people respond to it. Um, so it's definitely a big shift and, and I don't know, you know, it's always good news and bad news. I don't know, <laughs> getting off the opioids, but moving to something else, I guess. Oh, all right. Well, I uh, appreciate all the time there, Denny. Final thoughts on your end? Anything else you wanted to comment on that we didn't get to? 
Well, the one thing I wanted to tell you um, when we were talking about research, and I love when people are interested in research because I find it so fascinating, but <laughs> probably one of the top studies, or it's actually a set of studies that made me kind of go, wow, really, you know, was um, these number of studies in the past, I would say, eight to ten years, actually, that showed that when you get somebody into treatment, that people who are coerced into treatment, either by a licensing issue, by the criminal justice system, or what we call with adolescents the mommy mandate or the spousal mandate, people who are coerced into treatment do just as well or better than people who are not coerced. So this kind of belief that, oh, they have to want it or it won't work, that's our job. Get them into treatment, and we will transition them to that. You know, I mean, they can't leave treatment not wanting it. But people who are coerced into it do just as well or better. And if you really think about it, it starts to make sense. Because what we know from all the science is that longer time in treatment is a huge predictor of success. And these folks, frankly, can't leave. So they get exposed to more treatment. There's a longer time to help them, and they do just as well or better than the average than the person coming into treatment who says, "You know, I'm not really being all I can be. I think I need to quit all this and get some treatment." They actually do as well or better. So please don't wait for people to hit bottom. That people die while you're waiting for them to hit bottom. Get them in. There are families out there in anguish. There's a tremendous stigma that we need to fight. You know, everybody knows 10% of people who meet criteria for the diagnosis of a substance use disorder get treatment. And frankly, only 12% want it. We need to start addressing the other 88% who either don't want it, don't think they have a problem. And we're only going to get there with all these things if we all work together, the for-profits, the non-profits, the prevention, the treatment. We've just got to all work together. I love those comments. There's a, there's a I think three things I want to pull out there. You know, one, I remember when you told me that in Phoenix that you had seen that research where it didn't really matter if people were being coerced into treatment or not. That was surprising to me because I always had kind of that thought that there had to be some motivation there too. Um, yep. But it's really important to know. I think on the clinical end, it's really important to know because, you know, I'll be in centers and clinicians will make those comments, right? They're like, well, this person doesn't really want to be here. I don't think we should be treating them or whatever. And, and like you said, that's our job. <laughs> like that's, yeah. that's what we should be good at doing is helping people that maybe don't want to be there, you know, find recovery and get better. So yep. it might be more work, but that's, that's what we're trying to do. And then the final comment is you keep coming back to this statement that our goal is to save lives, right? And that's it. That's the bottom line. That's what we should all be trying to do. And sometimes we get embroiled in these um, philosophical battles and things like that. But, you know, they really shouldn't be factors. We should be looking at, like you said, the evidence and the data and what's working and yeah. find out what's going to help the person coming through our doors. And that answer is probably going to be different for every single person that comes in in some way, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, thanks so much, Denny. Appreciate all the time. Fantastic information all around. Um, if listeners want to contact you or RCA, how would they do that? Uh, very easy. They can call 1-800-RECOVERY. Um, they'll get our call center 24 hours a day. Um, they can ask for me and get a message to me or get connected to me, but also they can talk to anybody there. We're staffed, again, 365 days a year. Um, to answer questions, to talk to people, to talk to family members, or they can go online. We're at recoverycentersofamerica.com, and uh, you can get a lot of uh, information there. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Thanks, uh, Nick. To all our, yeah, absolutely. To all our listeners out there, um, thank you for listening in, tuning in as always. 
Uh, again, I'm your host, Nick Jaworski, owner of Circle Social Incorporated. And you can find this podcast anywhere where podcasts are found to download or stream. So thank you so much, and we'll talk to you guys next time.